Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Thank you for joining us with Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some pretty difficult and sometimes pretty important topics, and we are doing that today. We are talking about family courts and the crisis of family Sorry about that. Um, We are talking about the crisis in family courts. And when I say crisis, I think people who deal with this on a daily basis understand that we are indeed talking about a crisis. We are talking about some really horrific stuff that goes on in our family courts. Those of us who do not go into family courts routinely seem to think that courts are a place that we go to for fairness, justice, and to resolve our problems. For those of us who've had exposure to family courts, we know that despite whatever intentions there are, courts are often a place where egregious wrongs occur. And one of those wrongs is in the area of domestic violence for women who are trying to divorce and get away from someone who is perpetrating domestic violence and for the children who are involved. I have some very significant guests with me today. I have Barry Goldstein, prolific author, expert in the field of domestic violence. And I would say that the one of the books that Barry did was probably key in really focusing attention on domestic violence in that it brought together experts and research from all areas, not just one particular area. I have Marilee McLean with me, who is also an expert, a uh, um, uh, person who has done a lot of uh, education, a lot of public appearances. And uh, Marilee, Barry, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Been looking forward to it. We're happy Good. to be here. Good. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to start with you, Barry. When I say crisis in family courts, you know what I'm talking about. What? How would you? How would you summarize for somebody who's not familiar with what's going on in family courts? How would you explain what we mean by crisis in family court? What we're dealing with, we would normally expect that when courts are resolving cases, that not that they would get every case right, but they would get a very high percentage of cases right, and for a variety of historical and other reasons, um, when it comes to custody cases involving domestic violence and child abuse, which are the most important cases, um, they they get a very high percentage of these cases wrong, and the consequences are really catastrophic um, for our children and really for society. What do you mean when you say get it wrong? Um, there is good research that indicates how, how do you uh, try to recognize domestic violence, how do you respond to it. And what is constantly happening um, in family court is that they are taking true reports of domestic violence and child abuse, and they are very frequently disbelieving the true reports or else they're minimizing it so they don't provide the protection that children need. 
And so we have many cases where the courts gave access to fathers who then used the access to kill the children. Um, more commonly, they send children um, for sexual abuse. They send children to be physically abused. They send children to fathers who are going to destroy the relationship with the children's mothers. Um, and it has very severe consequences to the children. I, yes, I, I, and we've all heard those horror stories. Marilee, thank you for joining us. Marilee, when I say crisis in family courts, what what's the first thing that comes to your mind? That it's an epidemic. I It's not just a, a crisis in family court, it's an epidemic, and it's in numbers that people can't even imagine. And as Barry just stated, we have thousands and thousands of these cases. And I get calls from women from every state in the United States and internationally where they are unable to protect their children and themselves in our court system. So this is um, educated women. It doesn't matter what walk of life they're coming from. They're good, healthy, loving mothers, and they're losing their babies in our court system. And the courts are not listening to the domestic violence. So I think it is a major crisis. And as we'll discuss further, and I'm sure Barry will, is the repercussions of this to the children and to society is enormous. Well, I thought that when you went to court, and I've heard people say this, um, they have a very difficult divorce or whatever, and things are really tough, and their friends will say, well, take him to court. Take him to court. They encourage this because they think courts will be fair and just and help solve the problem. It sounds to me like the courts are doing anything but solving the problem. Is that your impression, Marilee? Um, I I say yes. Um, I, the courts were are the biggest downfall for this problem. I, you know, I don't know that. I haven't seen all the cases I've seen, which are a lot, and then just knowing in myself that it doesn't work that way. In in the court system, the children aren't being protected, like we said, and it's, the evidence is not coming out. So if, if you get into a court and you have evidence of abuse of your child and you have all the proof of that evidence and the judge is throwing out that evidence or the judge hasn't been trained in domestic violence or child abuse and he's listening to a GAL or a social worker that has thrown in this information but not taking in the critical, critical evidence, it, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. I think most of society out there believes that you can go to court and you can be protected and that you're going to be listened to and that your children are going to be listened to and usually the children don't even come into play because they're too young in those cases. But they're not listened to and they're not believed. And it goes back to, we can go back to history and go back into, you know, paternal having power and control. It isn't even about that. This is so much deeper and bigger than most people think and nothing is being done and nothing is being stopped. I mean, lots I think one, a lot of people are working on it. Yeah. I think one of the things that always struck me, and I'm getting a little long in the tooth now, so I've been around a while, and what I have discovered, what I've come to believe about the world, is that we all tend to look at everyone else's situation based on our own experience. If we've never experienced domestic violence or coercive control, then we tend to hear stories about it, and we either blame the victim, it must have been something she did, 
or we tend to dis- disregard some of it. Well, she's probably exaggerating, or um, we tend to not really see things through the same lenses if we've never experienced it. Do you think that might be part of the problem in going to court, or is it more of an uh, an endemic problem? Barry, do you, can you answer that? Well, I think there's one of the big problems, and it's certainly true in the custody courts, but it's true in a larger sense in our society, is that there's a tendency to have some personal experiences. And almost everybody has had some connection with domestic violence. You know, they're a victim, they're an abuser, or they know somebody who is. And they try to generalize from whatever circumstances they believe they're familiar with. And, of course, if they're involved, it's hard to be objective. Um, If it's they've heard from a friend or a relative, they've got one side. Um, And so it's really hard uh, to understand it from there. You know, the the real experts look at patterns and see how often these cases go wrong. And I think that's one big part of the problem. The other problem is historic in that when domestic violence first became a public issue in the mid to late 1970s, we had no research. And the popular belief was that domestic violence was caused by mental illness or um, substance abuse. And so the courts turned to mental health professionals as if they were the experts in domestic violence, and they're not. And so now we've had a generation of court officials who have been listening to people they thought were the experts provide a lot of misinformation. And now we have some really substantial, good research that could make the jobs of court professionals, particularly judges, much easier. But they never got into the practice of looking to this research to help them, and they never used a more multidisciplinary approach that would include genuine experts in domestic violence. And what happens when a professional doesn't understand domestic violence, they focus on other issues that are less important, and again, they get it wrong constantly. My impression, Barry, and of course I agree with you wholeheartedly on that issue, um, but also courts operate differently. Now, you're an attorney, so this, this is probably you know second nature to you, but it's not to me. Um, when I deal with attorneys or talk with attorneys or have dealt with courts, um, they, they look at things differently. They look at things on an incident basis and not as an overall picture. Now, I realize that I'm making huge generalizations here, but that's how I see it. When, well, you're, dealing with domestic, when you're dealing with domestic violence, it's the overall picture that's really important unless you're talking about a black eye. You're talking about patterns, and if you don't see the patterns, it's hard to see, you know, the forest for the trees. Am I? Is, does that make any sense, Barry? Well, Heather, first of all, um, I'm no longer an attorney. Now I'm a nice guy. So, <laughs> 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 no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but I, but I agree with you very strongly. There is a tendency um, in the courts, and you're really trained to do this to look at each issue and each incident and each case separately. 
And there are some valid reasons for doing that. But the problem is that domestic violence um, context is really important. And by looking at each incident and each issue separately, they miss the pattern. And that's one of the factors that contributes to them not understanding the cases like they should and also not to go back and look at the results and see that what they're doing is so frequently wrong. Mm-hmm. Marilee, is that your opinion too? Well, I, I guess I look at this differently. I, I, I have been involved in the courts and obviously went through this, so I understand it clearly, very clearly. And there's a lot more dynamics that go on and that I think when judges aren't trained and do not understand domestic violence or the coercive control that goes on in these cases and the emotional abuse that's going on, where you have no black eye, you have no women coming in beaten, but these when when there's a battering going on, they're very much in control, that, that batterer is. And so these women coming into court are coming up against somebody that has learned to manipulate the system. And that's really huge that, that these judges and the professionals involved in the in the court cases are not trained in this and, and do not even know what to look for. And so they don't even see the manipulation going on or the coercive control going on or the battering going on outside of that woman having a black eye or being beaten. Um, there's a lot of other types of battering going on. And that what I see happening is that's where it moves on to the children because – that person that is a batterer will move on to abuse those children. And all the cases I'm seeing, those children are in the midst of this abuse and in in the midst of being battered just as well. Whether they're not being beaten, uh, it could be sexual abuse, it can be child abuse, it can be all the emotional abuse that goes along with the battering. So uh, I I see my, my view of it is more of a lack of training. I just read an article recently about a case out of New York where a mom um, had battering going on and had a three-year-old son or something. And and actually, this is the first time in 25 years that I've heard a judge do the right thing, but it was a Supreme Court justice. And he ruled for uh, that father to get supervised visits and protected that mom and said that, you know, the guy was absolutely a batterer. You know, he had strangled the mom in court or whatever, I mean, um, while she was pregnant. And he, this, the guy was an attorney. The father was an attorney. But I found it amazing because the thing he said um, was that, that he had engaged in coercive control behavior, and this is a war of intimate terrorism. And I'm thinking, wow, somebody gets this. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And um, I think that the justice thing was Matthew Cooper, and I just want to say out there on, on the radio here that it's so important for these judges to get training. Now, I, I have to feel that this judge had some type of training because he said um, the father's ex- ex- explosive anger, his inability to control his emotions raises the distinct possibility he could hurt his son. I went, oh, my God, safety of the child. That's what Barry's been fighting all these years. That's what I've been fighting. That's what most of these people are fighting for the safety of our children and for the women that are being abused. But And then he said um, this, would, this would teach the child that it was acceptable to abuse others. Well, this is huge. This is huge progress in just one judge. But I w- I'd like to get a hold of this judge and see where he came up with this because most judges 
don't even know this exists. Well, and there's a couple of points about that that I think we should address. But first, I want to give out our phone number. If you would like to join our conversation, the chat line is open. Um, you can access that online. That's where you're listening. And also, if you'd like to call in, that call-in number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Give us a call, and we'll do our best to get you on the air to talk about your comments or your questions or even your experience. Chat line, we've got a few people in there, so uh, if you have a question or comment and you don't want to be on the air, just tap, uh, go into that chat line, and I'll be happy to share your information. Uh, that being said, <clears throat> you talk merely about uh, the protection of the child. As lay people, I've always heard the phrase, that the courts would look at the best interests of the child. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> and yet over and over and over, I see children being placed in a place that is absolutely not in their best interests. And so it seems to me, again, as a layperson, that we're more cautious, we, meaning the courts, are more cautious about distributing tables and chairs in a divorce than we are in, dis in distributing custody of children. Um, <sighs> am I, again, am I inaccurate no, no, here? I Mary, guess, help me out. No, no, no. Oh, okay, go ahead, Marilee. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and I know Barry could answer this very quickly also, but it's just that I really despise that best interest of the child deal because what happens with that is, in the best interest of the child, it's the parent that's more able to nurture the relationship with the child and the parent. Okay, so obviously if a woman's being abused and battered and the child's being raped, that woman, that mother, is not going to be able to nurture the relationship with the father and child. So mm -hmm. in the best interest of the child, the courts are awarding custody to the perpetrators because that father that's raping the child and is abusing the mother it shows no dis disdain towards the mom because he's the good guy because he's just trying to make things work out and make the relationship go well, whereas the mother wants that child, that father, out of that child's life. So she looks as not in the best interest of the child. So the courts are awarding custody to the perpetrators. Ugh, that's a bad, that's really a bad avenue there, the best interest of the child. is not working. Yeah. Well, um, Barry, I, in, in, again, I am not an expert here, but I've developed a, a little theory on how courts operate. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble here, I think. But it seems to me that the courts, the family courts, operate under three beliefs. One belief is that a father has a right to his child and that child will be damaged if a relationship does not exist with the father. My opinion, of course, is why would a child be damaged by not having a relationship with somebody who's hurting that person? Anyway, the second no, tenant you're not that going I anyway. huge. the second tenant that I see that courts operate under, in my opinion, is the belief that just because a child hurts the mother or a, a perpetrator hurts the mother doesn't mean he's going to hurt the child. And the third one is she's lying. Just period. She's lying. Am I out, way out of whack here, Barry, in your experience in, in how I've honed together my little theory of the operational tenets for most family courts? Well, Heather, I know you're 
rather modest because I know you do a lot of research about these things, and you certainly know far more about this than most of the court professionals. Um, <laughs> you know, the the thing is this. Um, if a child is denied a relationship with their father, that's harmful. Let's not forget about that. It is harmful. If the father is abusing the mother or abusing the the child, um, that's even more harmful. And too often the courts respond by pressuring the mother to cooperate with her abuser when what they should be doing is pressuring the abuser to stop his abuse because that's the only way it works best for the children. And there's no reason for him to engage in his abuse. So it's a, that would be win-win, whereas what the court is creating guarantees a, a loss. Um, I've heard some of the best judges acknowledge that one of the problems is that because so many fathers abandon their children, many judges bend over backwards to keep even dangerous fathers in children's lives, and that's a problem. Um, The other issue that you raise, which is really critical, is that, and the Saunders study from the U.S. Department of Justice found that core professionals who do not have the training and the knowledge that they need tend to focus on the myth that women frequently make false reports. And this tends to be self-fulfilling, and we have all these cases where they disbelieve true reports because they don't know what to look for, and they're just assuming that the report is false. Now, just to go back to the best interest of the child, if the courts could actually do that and did actually do that, you know, what could be better than acting in the best interest of the child? The problem is that it's done in a way that is all too subjective. I mean, I can cite all sorts of really good research that would show what's in the best interest of the child. But the way it works in family court is that it's very subjective by the evaluators, by the lawyers, by the judges, and they decide what they think would be best for the child. And it can't get reversed because that's the judge's opinion and the appellate courts defer to the judges. The Safe Child Act, you know, instead says you must um, make a decision where the first priority is the health and safety of children. That would change everything because we have the research that shows where particular behaviors impact the health and safety of children, and that's an objective formula which would allow appellate courts to reverse judges if they don't act in the best interest of the children by promoting their health and safety, and that would change everything in some really good ways. I agree with that, but there's one problem. If the people involved have the, the resources to take it to the appellate court, Right, that's a problem, but at the same time, the judges won't always know whether or not it could be appealed, and 
they don't want to be reversed. So it would impact cases that never would have been appealed, you know, if a bad decision was made. Again, it seems to me that when I see these cases and when I see custody cases, it's not the best for the child. It's, uh, let me see, let me back up. What I might think is best for a child, i.e. not be around somebody who's going to hurt him, how that seems obvious to me. But in so many cases, I see courts saying, no, what's best for the child is to just have contact with this person even if he's hurting them. How I, that's, that's some sort of leap for me. I, well, I don't it's understand. Like, it's like that same thing. Sorry, go ahead, honey. Heather? No, go, no, go ahead, Marley. You know well, what no, I'm I just at. think it was, this, it was the same thing as um, when we had a, a statute here, the, the, the legislation we were trying to get passed, and it was getting, trying to get passed in all the states across Where's the here, country. Marley? Where's and, here? I, I'm in Colorado. And they were trying okay. to pass um, the 50-50. To, you know, obviously, let's just give every parent 50-50. Well, not every parent is a good parent. And when you do that, you subject women that have been domestic abused, and usually the guys that go to court for, they want to fight for that 50-50, a lot of those are abusers. And so those children are not being protected, but the courts are saying, well, you know, just like you were saying earlier, it's good to get that father in that child's life because, you know, in the in the past, fathers weren't involved, they want to keep all the fathers involved. I don't believe that's true, and I stick with the fact that, no, if they're not a good parent, they don't belong in that child's life. If they're hurting that child or they're raping that child, that father does not belong in that child's life. And and I don't understand, I mean, when women go to criminal court and they and it's prosecuted when they're raped, what's the difference when a child is raped or a child is being abused? and they're not being protected in the, in the family court. Family court's not even listening to the evidence. Even when Barry's stating, I'm totally behind Barry and the Safe Child Act, I believe the safety of the child comes first, it all has to be there. But I see one more problem. The one more problem is even if that evidence is getting into court, and I know this for a fact, with the evidence that comes into court with the sexual abuse of children and the judges are throwing it out and not even looking at the evidence, what are we going to do then? Barry, are they going to look at the Safe Child Act and go, wow, this child has this this information from Children's Hospital, this information from a Humana Hospital, this information from this psychologist and this therapist stating this child is being abused. She's disclosed the abuse. But if that judge does not listen to that abuse and does not take that evidence into account, how is our safe child act going to save us? I want to make sure of that. So I'm just going to put that out to Barry. Okay. Well, I mean, the first <laughs> thing, there are several parts to the Safe Child Act. One of the things is to require a more multidisciplinary approach. So, right. So, you know, we have an awful lot of evaluators who, as we said, no mental illness, no psychology, do not know child sexual abuse, do not know domestic violence. And so, and because they don't have the training that Saunders talked about, they tend to focus on the myth that women frequently make false reports. They tend to focus on on scientific alienation theories. And so it's their lack of training rather than the circumstances in the case that lead to uh, recommendations. Safe Child Act would require that the courts look at 
what expertise do they need? And so they might need somebody who is a genuine expert in child sexual abuse or in um, domestic violence. That's who they right. would use. The Safe Child Act also says we need to be using current scientific research, particularly the ACE research, Adverse Childhood Experiences, that comes from the Centers for Disease Control and the Saunders study from the uh, U.S. Justice Department, so that the courts are going to get information that is relevant and that's, that's good scientific research. What you have now with a lot of evaluators is that at best they are giving their personal opinions when they don't have the expertise they need. And at worst, you have a cottage industry of lawyers and psychologists who make a lot of money helping abusers, and so they are both biased and ignorant and you know promote mm, theories that you know encourage courts to hurt children because the professionals make a lot of money by doing that. Um, so you have both problems, the ignorant professional and the biased professional, and you have lawyers and judges who have spent their entire career hearing misinformation. And one right. of the things that I think the Safe Child Act is going to do, it really is a statement from the legislature that the present practices are not acceptable. I mean, I used to hear judges all the time say, if we were doing something wrong, the legislature would change it. Well, that's what the Safe Child Act does. And um, in speaking with a, one, a really good judge in uh, Colorado where they did some changes to their laws, particularly yeah. to promote safety of children, the judge told me that judges who for years did not want any training, tried to avoid training, suddenly wanted to be trained because they needed to know how to implement the new law. That would be even more so with the Safe oh, Child huge. Act. Yeah, so it's going to change that. the atmosphere in the court in addition to providing better and accurate information. How do you get these people trained? Marilee, like, if I can just jump in here, Marilee, um, let's explain yes. for our listeners what the Safe Child Act is. It's a, an yes. act that has been drawn up and that uh, advocates are trying to get support for in Congress uh, to address some of these issues. Am I right in that statement, Barry? Not, not in Congress. It would be in each state. Um, in each and state. Hawaii became the first state to introduce it. Um, it would change how domestic violence cases are handled in each state. Just to summarize what we've talked about so far, we've talked about courts that are basically not either up to speed or, um, for whatever reason, making decisions based on incident-based, uh, on, on single incidents instead of patterns, they do not have training in domestic violence, so they don't see um, the need to look at patterns. And that seems to be a, a basis for a lot of this, this uh, misinformation and, and poor decisions when it comes to the safety of children and the protection of children. But we also have seen from the Saunders study, and I should 
uh, clarify, um, uh, Dr. Daniel Saunders uh, from the University of Michigan was basically given a grant by the United States Department of Justice to look into this. So this is basically, uh, you know, uh, heavy-duty research from, uh, that, that is uh, the basis of our comments today. Um, what, we're looking, what we saw in that study is that the evaluators, all of these psychologists and GALs or guardians ad litem, which are attorneys appointed by the court, supposedly in the best, to look out for the best interests of the child, all of these people tend to base, as you said, Barry, their decisions not on hard evidence and on studies, but instead on their personal beliefs mm-hmm. and their, you know, I mean, let's just say it, patriarchy and sexism. Um, and I don't use those terms lightly because I know just the words turn people off and they tend to not listen to what you're saying after that. But it's true. Um, so that research indicated that all of these supposed experts don't have training in domestic violence, they don't understand the dynamic, and therefore they're making decisions based on their personal beliefs rather than hard and fast evidence of what's actually happening for that child. So, um, you know, I mean, basically what all these court evaluations are telling us is about the evaluators, not about that situation or that child. Is this consistent with what you have seen, Marilee? Uh, yes, I agree, and and I think the Saunders study um, should be imperative. And 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 once the Safe Child Act, I mean, in Colorado we have somewhat similar to the Safe Child Act. It needs to go deeper, so that's why dairies. I'd like to see that come into every state. Um, so it is is getting to these people where you have to have the right professionals looking at this, but they do have to be trained in it, and that is huge. And I find it amazing. I guess why I, I don't want to go off the track of what you're saying, but I was just looking at, um, I read something the other day, quite a, quite a bit of information on the fact that how they're still using PAS and all these um, dynamics that these GALs and psychologists come up with to put out there for for uh, children and for women not to be protected because they'll say the woman has um, PAS or she got some kind of an emotional disorder, whatever they can do. PAS is a discredited theory called parental oh, alienation sorry, yeah. syndrome. And that what that is is, uh, is a, a, a very... I won't even talk about the person who invented the theory, but a, a, a pretty sleazy guy invented the supposed theory of, of uh, parental alienation where it says well, that, gosh, if a child doesn't <laughs> want to go see daddy, clearly there's only one reason, and that's because mommy has poisoned his mind. Uh, why it is so difficult for somebody to grasp the fact that we don't want to go see people that hurt us. Nobody has to poison our minds yeah. against that person. If we don't like that person and that person is mean to us, why do we want to see him? Nevertheless, parental alienation syndrome was developed in the 80s, um, and uh, it has glommed on. And I have to say, and I, I wanted to ask this question of both of you, but especially you, Barry, I belong to an organization called the AFCC. And well, you can be this, saying that on the air. I know, I know, I'm going to be stoned. I'm going to have to hide my address. You should not um, be saying that. <laughs> the reason I belong to it is because basically in my heart I'm a Pollyanna and I think I can make change from within. That being said, 
<laughs> the AFCC is a group, in theory, it sounds wonderful. It's a group of all of the family court personnel, all of the people and decision makers who are making uh, custody and you know decisions. And supposedly this group trains them. I have gone to two of their events, and I get their newsletter, and I have spoken with several people involved, and I have never ever seen such a collection of people who are so wedded to the theory that mothers alienate their children from these poor, poor daddies. It makes yeah. me crazy. Well, Barry, I, I can't believe that. Well, let me, let me jump over, Marilee. Barry, sure. why would a group of guardians ad litem, attorneys, psychologists, um, court advocates, judges, why would they be so wedded to this concept of parental alienation, which has been discredited and, and not recognized by the American Bar Association, by the American Psychological Association, and many, many other credible organizations? Why are they so entrenched in believing in this parental alienation thing? Um, I think you've got two groups of professionals in the AFCC and in, in the courts one group is the cottage industry of lawyers and evaluators that found that they can make a lot of money by supporting practices that help abusers. That's because contested custody is overwhelmingly domestic violence cases. And as we know, domestic violence is about control, including the control of the family finances. So if you want to make a lot of money as a court professional, you want to go where the money is, which is with the abusers. So there's a lot of professionals who do it for that reason. There are also some professionals, you know, who may be abusive in their own lives and, you know, just philosophically believe that men are entitled to control their families. Um, and the rest of it is that there's a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, uh, Gardner created PAS, not based on any research, but based on his personal beliefs and experiences. And he made many public statements to the effect that sex between adults and children can be acceptable. And I suspect that if judges and other professionals knew the origin, they'd run from it. But they don't. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, it's course, like they don't get the studies. Yeah. Sorry. You know, and, of course, you know, Saunders found that professionals without the training that they need tend to focus on, on scientific alienation theories. And one of the other big parts of that problem, and I've heard many judges say this, is, you know, clearly there are cases where mothers or fathers say negative things about the other parent. So their conclusion from that is obviously there is alienation, and so there's no need to consider that the alienation theories that are in practice are something very different. You Because, know, yes, parents make negative statements, but that's not a mental health problem. When When parents do that, you know, it's based on bad behavior. It's not based on some kind of pathology. And one of the big problems with the mental health professional's role 
in the courts is that they very often pathologize uh, protective mothers. Yes. Wonderful. Um, when we talk about, you know, the entrenchment in this particular group that I mentioned, I also see uh, that entrenchment in courts, in family court. Why does it appear to me, uh, as a layperson, that courts are so entrenched in the way that they do things that they are reluctant to look at new research and new ways of doing things, all the way to the point of being defensive about it and punitive if somebody wants them to change their operational opinions? Is that too vague? Marilee, do you know what I'm trying to say here? Yeah, oh, and, ahead, and, and it's it, it's a real it's a real problem. It seems like court professionals, particularly judges and administrators, tend to believe that when people are criticizing their practices, when people are talking about how often they get these cases wrong, that if they were to acknowledge that, if they were to be open to it, it would undermine the reputation of the court system, and so they get really defensive. And the reality is very different. You know, what I find is that when courts retaliate against mothers, when they create what Dr. Saunders calls harmful outcome cases, which are basically cases where the court disbelieves true reports and then punishes and retaliates against mothers who continue to believe after the court failed to recognize. Um, these cases are what are really damaging the court uh, reputation because it, it demonstrates that they're willing to punish children in order to punish the mothers. And they are, once they make a mistake, they're not open to the idea that they made a mistake and they need to reconsider based on new research, based on new evidence, um, and so they keep getting it wrong. And I think, too, Barry, they take a, a bias and they go with it. They um, they make their minds up in the beginning without really doing the research, without really understanding what's going on in that family unit, and they go with it. And once they've gone with it, they don't they don't back off. If they believe that that child is not being abused and uh, the woman is a vindictive ex-wife or whatever, they'll stick with that belief no matter how much evidence comes out. And, they, and, it, and it almost becomes like a, a game in the courtroom. And, yes, it is about money, too, because there's a, I don't like to bring up the money side of this because I see these cases coming with people with lots of money coming into them and they're still losing. I see them coming with no money and they're losing. So, but... Of course, as you said, it's a cottage industry. They are making a lot of money, like the people from the CFCC. And when they don't understand what doing here with the PAS label and still using it and how it's affecting the court system and affecting children's lives and good parents' lives, it's huge. And I'm, I'm shocked. You know, I, I read up on that a lot. I read up on their, um, their actual conferences and stuff. And I know there's a lot of good people and judges and lawyers that are in there because I've looked at the list from even here in Colorado, but they don't know what they're in because they're in something that's causing more damage to the system than they can imagine. 
Well, my little, my just as an aside here, Marilee, but my little attempt is almost every time they have a conference, I submit a proposal for a <laughs> for a workshop <laughs> on coercive control <laughs> or domestic violence. <laughs> I, they have yet to accept me as a presenter. Well, I actually <laughs> called the executive, the president, and talked to him on the phone about it and said, "Is there something you can tell me about this?" That you know, and talked to him at length about it, and, and <laughs> so I, I've gone all the way to on that whole issue. But, uh, well, I've talked with the, I'm in Washington State, and, and I've talked with the, the president of the Washington State chapter, and he assured mm-hmm. me that there definitely is a thing called parental alienation, that we've all seen it, you know, it is there. Well, okay. I think I look at that differently than most, um, and, and I got this from somebody that did a lot of research on this, and what she said to me is, it's true, there is parental alienation. There are parents out there that alienate the other parent. It's obvious that they do do that. The parental alienation syndrome, which Gardner started, is really on the sexual abuse side of this. And it's PAS, he labeled it parental alienation syndrome, is that um, when there's sexual abuse allegations, they're not really going on. And, and, you know, and in Gardner's way, he believes, obviously, in pedophilia because he states it's okay for the pedophile to sure. come out of the closet and choose whom he wants to love or it's God's will that we need to have more pity for the pedophile than scorn. It makes little girls yeah. and little boys better sexual partners. So with Gardner's theories and the things that he did and getting that into the mainline, he had sent his book self-published to every court in the nation and we're still taking on those theories and, and somebody like this organization is still taking on that stuff yeah i just yep. can't believe that we can't get to the mainstream media more on these cases and i really like to see um you know barry go into that last boston globe art- article and discuss that because you know that's the first mainstream media we've really seen on this issue of what's happening and i know cases that are much worse than that case and nobody's even touched them. So um, exactly. I'm not trying to change well, the subject. Well, and we're going to go. Uh, you want. Yeah. Well, we're going to do, uh, uh, I think, um, uh, as I mentioned to you, Barry and Marilee, this is going to be a four-week series on the crisis in the courts. And we're going to take on that issue of the father's rights movement. We're going to take on the notion of what can we do about this, including getting a, the the word out and and uh, informing people. But those are going to be in four, you know, in a, in the next uh, three weeks yeah. as okay. well. Right now, let's go back and talk more about what is this crisis and why does it exist. We've talked about it exists because of a lack of education. Uh, a lack of either the willingness to receive the information on the, the ha- behalf of the court professionals or the inability for us, those of us who, who know differently, to get them to accept the information. And that brings me back to that whole defensive thing that we were talking about before we took this little little side side movement. Barry, it seems to me that when we choose professions in our life, we tend to choose professions that fit comfortably with our beliefs, personalities, our uh, modus operandi, our, our, the way we think. When I'm looking at court professionals, do they think differently from me? Is that why they don't see a need um, to, to look at the harm that's being caused by this? I mean, I'm trying to get a real understanding of this, and I know I'm oversimplifying, but help me out here, Barry. I think that there is a insular atmosphere um, within the court system. I mean, um, I've found it's interesting. I've had a chance to deal with 
domestic violence issues in other parts of society. Um, and where the research is welcomed, where they're more open to changing over time than within the custody court system. I mean, the Saunders study is U.S. Department of Justice, really good research, came out in 2012, and the courts have been very slow at best to integrate that. The ACE research, Adverse Childhood Experiences, comes from the Centers for Disease Control. Again, highly credible research. It demonstrates that the harm of exposure to domestic violence is far more serious than previously understood and that it doesn't require physical abuse. Uh, and again, the courts have been really slow to integrate this important research because these two studies, if the custody courts integrated them, would change everything. And they've been slow I agree to do it. You know, I think in part because they believe they are doing a good job and they are not as open as they should be to the mistakes that they're making and to the enormous harm that they're doing. And, you know, one of the things I try to do is to figure out a way to present this information to the courts so that they can hear it. And, and to be able to say, you know, hey, we have this new research that you didn't have before, and can we take a look at practices and procedures and cases based on this new extremely credible research? And, you know, some judges will listen and some won't. Um, but I think it's the insular atmosphere that they listen to the same psychologists, the same lawyers all the time. And so when there are others with new information, they're sort of reluctant. When I go to testify as an expert in areas, particularly outside my home area, um, lots of times, you know, there's a question, well, should I be allowed to testify when my credentials are far beyond the um, usual people they use? But it's outside their experience. Um, you know, so I mentioned to them that I did four presentations for the American Psychological Association at their national conference. So the APA thought it was important for their psychologists to know about ACE and Saunders, but the custody courts are wondering, should we even listen about ACE and Saunders? <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the yeah, courts maybe. seem to be very insular, as you're talking about, uh, from from my perspective. And again, I'm not an attorney. I go, don't go to court every day. Uh, but from uh, a lay perspective, the courts do seem to be very insular. And I must say there's also a, a sense of we are right and anybody else isn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, I definitely get that sense in, in almost every court person that I've ever come in contact with. And I don't know whether they have to develop that sense of assuredness in order for them to be able to be decisive and, and make actions and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know. But I have definitely seen that, that, no, I'm right, period, the end. 
The other thing, and I'm just throwing this out, I don't need this to be a big discussion, but some of the characteristics that I've seen in many court personnel are very similar to those of controlling people. I'm just saying, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I wanted to do, and I'm looking at our clock going, no, no, it can't be just eight minutes left, but unfortunately that's what we have. We've talked almost exclusively about child custody, and I'm glad that we have because it's a huge crisis. But I do just want to mention that when we're talking crisis in family court, it's not just custody. There are other issues that um, people who go to family court deal with. Um, Some of those issues include accessibility. Some of those issues include re-abuse re-victimization by the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, can do, Can either of you speak about, real briefly, about re-victimization or using the courts to re, re, re-abuse uh, a victim? Well, well that's I, the I purpose. That's really the purpose Barry, of... start? The, it's really the purpose of domestic violence cases. What happens is abusers have figured out that the best way to regain control after their victim leaves, is to go after the children. And so a large majority of contested custody are the worst abusers who think that they have no right to leave and they're using litigation to bankrupt their victims, to um, hurt their victims, to try to get the courts to punish their victims. And the courts don't understand or even think about the abuser's motives. They're assuming that the abuser is acting out of love for the children. And so we're not thinking about how all this impacts the mother or that by hurting the mother, we're really hurting the children. You know, the, the, um, the children will pick up the mother's fear and what the ACE study is about is that living with the fear creates the worst kind of stress that leads to shorter lives and a lot more health and other problems. And the courts rarely focus on how can we relieve the fear and the stress that the victims are under, and yet that's the best thing they could do for the children. Yeah. Well, and as when we kind of come full circle here, when we started the show, I talked about the family court judge that I interviewed who punished a woman for showing the effects of that stress and fear. Um, and, you know, I wanted to say to her, I did not have a chance to, but I wanted to say to her when she was talking about how she awarded custody of the child to the person who seemed to have it all together, the abuser who was in control, mm-hmm. because that's what he does. Um, and took custody away from the mother who didn't have it together. She was stressed and disorganized. And and I wanted to say to her, you don't think that it's stressful for her to think that a person that she knows to win, abusers win, that's what they do. You don't think it's stressful for her to know that she's up against this person that she knows wins, and he's told her he's going to take her children away from her. How could she possibly not exhibit stress and, and and being frantic and all of that, it makes no sense. And then well, she's Well, and, and I find that 
women that are that are going through this, it doesn't matter how they react in court. They can be cold if if they're if they're trying to hold their emotions and hold together, then they're cold and unemotional. And if they cry, they're too emotional. And so they're re- they're really subjected to a lot of um, of secondary abuse because you have been abused by that perpetrator and you come into a system believing it's going to protect your child and protect you and you are re-victimized by the whole system. But another thing that the courts do not understand is that these men, uh, I'm saying men because most of these abusers are men when it comes down to domestic violence. I I know women can be abusers, but I'm I'm sticking with this as a Mm -hmm. statistic. But the bottom line is once they abuse like that and the courts give them the control of that child and they hand that woman back to him on a silver platter, in a sense, because you're giving that child to the abuser. You're once again bringing that woman full fold into fighting for that child, and it keeps the court abuse going on. It keeps the money going on. It keeps going back to court going on because that woman is never... Women are going to fight for their babies to the death, so they're going to continue to go back to court if they can to fight for that child. And when they're treated the way they are by the courts, and then you've handed this abuser, like Barry's saying you know, all this control and power, well, that's exactly coercive power and control that he wanted. And a lot of these men are narcissistic or they're sociopaths. And, you you know, courts are just failing, failing miserably because they don't understand the The courts need to be educated, and, and we have to figure out how we can get them to get that education. Barry Goldstein, Marilyn McLean, thank you so much for joining us today. I have learned a lot from you. I hope all of our listeners have as well. Um, I wanted to just sum up by saying that uh, estimates are that there are 58,000 children every year sent, sent to an abuser and for unprotected custody or unprotected visitation, and they are in danger. And in 2009, 175 of these children were murdered because courts gave them to an abuser. It's not a small thing, and I think that we all need to be aware of it, and we all need to do something about it. Um, The other thing uh, I wanted to just mention, that when we are talking about these cases and we're looking at them from our own experiences, divorce is is like childbirth. There's none that's easy, but some of it is a hell of a lot harder than others. And when we're talking about cases that go to court, there's only, well, there's less than 4% of custody cases that actually have to go before a judge and have a trial. It's the, those, that 4% that we are talking about, 4%, but it can be such a deadly 4%, and the impact on the children is so significant. And whenever we impact large groups of children, we're impacting the future of our society and our culture. Again, thank you so much, Barry. Next week, we're going to be revisiting crisis courts topic, and we're going to be talking about the role of the Father's Rights Movement. And uh, we are going to have uh, some very, very expert uh, people come and talk on the show. I hope you'll join us then. I do end our uh, shows every week with a quote, and this week the quote about the courts is, it's tough. It's tough to find a, a quote because I'll be honest with you, uh, Barry and Marilyn, most of the quotes that I found about courts were from people like Alec Baldwin uh, complaining about how the courts aren't fair to fathers. Um, and we know that that's not necessarily the case, so I didn't want to use a quote like that. So I found a poem by a gentleman named Gregory Warner. don't know who he is, but here's an excerpt from the poem. 
Only the foolish believe they can justify a truth to a court of fools. Honor the truth, for even before a just judge, a lie can be proven credible. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Women, Three Ways. Please join us next week. I would like to recommend uh, any book by Barry Goldstein for further information. Uh, Marley McLean, uh, M-C-L-E-A-N, also has books out there, and they are experts in the field. Thank you so much for joining us.